Well, friends, we are continuing on, I think, as most everyone in the room is aware, through Paul's letter to the Romans. And as we considered last week, as we say here at CBC often, the Bible, in one sense, can be summarized as a story of two Adams, the first one and the last one. And that's what we're going to be considering pointedly again this week from the pen of the Apostle Paul, the first Adam and the last Adam, whose name is Jesus of Nazareth. As we thought about last week, and we'll double down on today, Paul's understanding of the gospel, his understanding of salvation, is grounded in covenant representation. As Adam represented us all, so Christ represents all who are united to him. And so if you have your Bibles with you, open them to Romans chapter 5. We're going to be considering verses 15 to 21 in our time together this morning. As you're turning and making your way there, let me briefly give us the lay of the land as far as the letter to the Romans. You will remember, many of you, that Paul began the body of his letter by announcing God's way of salvation. The gospel, says Paul, reveals the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God in particular that is given to sinners, that is entirely of faith. Paul then demonstrates the necessity of this one way of salvation. This is because all mankind, whether Jew or Gentile, is under sin. All human beings are guilty and are incapable of being reconciled to God, incapable of being justified in God's sight on the basis of their own obedience, on the basis of their own righteousness. Paul then explained and heralded God's remedy to man's condition. And he also explained and heralded the way in which it is applied. Jesus fulfilled the law. He fulfilled its requirements for righteousness and he fulfilled its penalty. He endured its curse, making satisfaction for sin. And what he did is applied to ungodly people by faith apart from works. And then beginning in chapter 5, Paul begins to unfold the blessedness of receiving and accepting and resting on Christ. What is that? Peace with God, now and forever. Eternal hope. The hope of eternal joy with the Lord. And Paul, through it all, extols the love of God for us. Though we were unworthy, unable, unwilling, ungodly, the love of God has resulted in the salvation of sinners through the Lord Jesus Christ. Which brings us to chapter 5 and verse 12. And though we're going to be considering verses 15 to 21 pointedly today, I want to read beginning from Romans 5.12 through the end of the chapter. So listen now to God's word. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning 
was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's obedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We thank him for his word today and every day. So my plan for us this morning, I want to briefly reiterate the main point of verses 12 to 14. We're going to do that. Then after that, we're going to follow that with two points from our text today and a conclusion. So a recap of 12 to 14, two points and a conclusion. So let's consider again in brief verses 12 to 14. Because as you see, just like I see, verses 12 to 14 and verses 15 to 21 are of a piece. They need to be understood together. In verse 12, Paul begins to make an inference from the entirety of what he had written from the beginning of the letter. He's starting to bring this all down on a wedge and put a bow on his teaching on justification. Based on everything that Paul had written about justification through Christ, it is clear that there is a striking analogy between our fall in Adam and our redemption in Jesus. So he asserts that. He begins to state that and then briefly effectively stops to explain himself in verses 13 and 14. God, we considered this in depth last week, God imputes, he counts Adam's guilt in breaking the covenant God made with him. He counts Adam's guilt to the entire human race. This is because Adam represented us all in the Garden of Eden. In that covenant that God made with Adam, Adam could have earned life and blessedness for obedience. He could have earned that for himself and his children. Or he could plunge himself and all of his posterity into death if he disobeyed. That death was not simply physical, temporal death. It was death at a spiritual level, far more severe. That death would mean that human beings from the first moment of our existence were no longer in communion with God. The test of Adam's obedience in the garden was pointedly the prohibition that he was not to eat the fruit of a particular tree. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And Adam, as we know, broke the covenant. And so, 
it's critical for our understanding that as our representative, Adam's breaking of the covenant is our breaking of the covenant. Adam's sin is our sin. Adam's guilt is our guilt. That's Paul's argument. And so all human beings at the moment they begin to exist bear the penalty of Adam's covenant. Namely, death. Spiritual, temporal, and eternal. In Adam, covenant guilt is counted to us. But Adam, says Paul, is a type of the one who was to come. Just as Adam represents everyone who is in him, so Jesus represents everyone who is united to him. So where Paul's going in verses 15 to 17, he's going to further explain the analogy between Adam and Christ. And then in verses 18 to 21, he's effectively going to pull it all together. He's going to put the bow on his teaching on justification. He's going to drive it down on a wedge and state his doctrine plainly. May the Lord give us attentiveness and understanding because this passage of Scripture is as helpful as any when it comes to understanding how it is that we are saved. So point one. The explanation of the analogy between Adam and Christ. Or you could simply, if you're taking notes, put Adam and Christ. Paul is going to explain that analogy in verses 15 to 17. If you put your eyes on verse 15, you see Adam was a type of the one who was to come, but Paul's going to go in for several verses that the one who was to come, namely Jesus, is greater. Adam represented us all, that's true, but he was but a shadow of the one who was coming, who is greater than him, who is a greater covenant representative than Adam. Just as the guilt that was imputed to us all in Adam was but a shadow of the gift of righteousness that is given to sinners in Christ. The guilt of Adam, look at the verse, you can see this. The guilt of Adam brought death and ruin. But the gift of righteousness in Christ not only overcomes death and ruin, it also brings with it eternal blessedness. As much guilt came in Adam, there is even more righteousness in Christ. The righteousness of Christ overcomes the guilt of Adam. As much death and ruin came in Adam, there is more life and blessedness in Christ. The life and blessedness that Jesus brings overcomes the death and the ruin that Adam brought. The free gift, the righteousness that comes through Christ does far more than just repair what Adam ruined. This is why Paul keeps saying much more, much more, much more. We have gained far more in Christ than we lost in Adam. We're going to see that repeatedly today. Verse 16. Through the one that sinned, condemnation came by his one transgression. But the free gift of righteousness through Christ, Paul says, extends to many offenses and leads to justification. 
The gift of righteousness. See this. Think about this. The gift of righteousness that we receive in Christ both overcomes our guilt, our state of guiltiness, and overcomes all the sins that we personally commit. It does both. Notice as well, verse 16, for our doctrine, so that we understand the revelation of God, the judgment following the one sin of Adam brought condemnation for everyone whom he represents. The one sin, breaking the covenant, eating the fruit, brought condemnation for all because his sin is counted as our sin. Own that. Notice as well, for our doctrine, the free gift in Christ brings justification for all whom he represents. Why? Because his righteousness is counted as our righteousness. Own that. Believe it. Trust it. Receive it. In this verse, verse 16, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. We see how the work of Christ is greater than the sin and the guilt of Adam. We were counted with Adam's guilt and as a result of Adam's corruption being passed down to us, we became sinners in every conceivable way. We sin because of what we are. We sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. So we sin in every conceivable way and have committed countless transgressions. We have sinned, as was prayed earlier, in thought and word and deed. We have sinned at the level of desire. We have sinned at the level of motivation. It's far worse than we think. This week, as you reflect back on your life, and you think about how you operated with people that you say you love, and you do, but how you're calculating. You know as you look at your week or as you think about your day, there are these certain things that you want to do. There is this way that you want things to go. And it matters a whole lot more to you and to me than we ever let on. Our reactions give it away when we're disappointed. When things don't go the way we want. We're angry. We're frustrated. It's a bag of cats in here, like we say sometimes. It's not good. We just generally, we are, we're irritable. We're quick-tempered. We get frustrated with people, especially that we live in close proximity to. We speak often, just thoughtlessly, we speak poorly of other people. We think poorly of other people. We would be horrified if the thoughts in our minds about other people, even who sit here this morning, were put on display on the screen back here. This is the depth of our corruption. We harbor unforgiveness. We deal with people according to a record of wrongs. We lust after all kinds of things. We think too highly of ourselves. We delude ourselves into thinking that we're doing pretty well. Crushing it, man. Every time I pull the lever, it's trip sevens. Couldn't do any better. And we put confidence in that. Some of us, as we think about our lives, our weeks, 
characterized by despondency, cynicism. We're going around, we're brokers for Satan's doubt, not the hope of Christ. We manipulate other people. We're master manipulators to get what we want. We have committed countless sins. Not only have we done, thought, and felt wrong, though, there are countless ways we have left undone the things we should have done. That's also a problem. There are sins we commit, and then there are sins of omission. Ways we fail to do as we should. May we think like this. As was prayed earlier, not for one minute this week have any of us loved God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not for one minute this week have we loved our neighbor as ourselves. Selfishness, a concern for our comfort, dominates our thoughts and motivations. Laziness. Just don't want to do it. Do it later. Do it tomorrow. Passivity. I know there's this thing I need to address, but that's uncomfortable. I'm not going to do it. Apathy. What does it matter? Everything's pointless. This is meaningless. These are things that play on Luke in our hearts and minds. In light of all of that, as you think about yourself, big things that we need to see from Romans 5.16 regarding the work of Christ for us, two things. One, we have been justified in Him. Justified, meaning that in Adam, covenant guilt counted to us in Christ, covenant righteousness, yours and mine by faith. We are justified, declared righteous. We are forgiven of sin, and we are absolved of our guilt. God be praised. That's one thing. Second thing, there is not a single one of those countless sins that we have committed, not a single failure, that the righteousness of Christ is not covered, and that the blood of Christ is not washed away. Not a single one. Consider Christ and take heart. Verse 17. We see there, because of one man's trespass, again, this is Adam's breaking of the covenant. Because of that, death reigned through him. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Death reigned through the one man, Adam. All bear the penalty of the one man's sin. The one represents the many. All die because one sin. If that's true, much more, says Paul. We're going to see much more. If that's true of Adam, the gift of righteousness in Christ does more than just recover us from the fall. It secures our eternal life. It takes us all the way home. You can see Paul has set up this analogy between Adam and Christ, but he's like, look guys, don't get it twisted. Adam represented us, but the work of Christ is so much more significant. It accomplishes so much more. As devastating as the fall was, the redemptive work of Christ is greater. The abundance of of grace in the gift of righteousness abounds over what was lost. We receive more than we lost. The righteousness, hear this, the righteousness we possess now in Christ is better than the righteousness Adam possessed in his innocence. When Adam was made, he was made upright. 
He was made without sin. But our righteousness is a better righteousness. Why? Because it is the righteousness of Christ himself. The God-man. His righteousness is invincible. His righteousness is unshakable. We will, says Paul, reign in life. That's eternal life. We will reign in life through Jesus Christ. And the end will be better than the beginning. We don't just need a return to Eden. That's not the biblical message. We need more than that. Because again, Adam made upright, but he could sin. He could ruin it. And he did. The final state of the redeemed, beloved, is far more secure. Far more unshakable. Because in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we are raised incorruptible, imperishable, we will not even be able to sin. We will not want to sin, and we will not sin. Sin will have no presence in the new heavens and the new earth. Breaks your brain to try to think of that, of that reality. That we will live in a world seeing our Lord face to face with one another, and we will not even have an inkling of a desire to do wrong. The end will be better than the beginning. And here's the thing. The righteousness that you have today is far better than the righteousness Adam had. Because the righteousness you have today is the righteousness you will have standing before the Lord at the end of it all. The righteousness of Christ for you is going nowhere. Because Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. We have been made a kingdom and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth, Revelation 5.10. We are one with Christ in his victory and in his triumph and there is zero danger of ever losing what we have received in him. The work of Christ is far superior to the fall of Adam. Jesus came that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. There is a striking analogy between Adam and Jesus, says Paul, but it is not a one-to-one. -one. Jesus is greater. The gift of righteousness in Christ is greater than the guilt imputed in Adam. The gift of justification in Christ is greater than our condemnation in Adam. The gift of eternal life in Christ is greater than our death in Adam. Praise be to God. So that's point one. That's the analogy between Adam and Christ. Adam is a type of the one who is to come. He's but a shadow, though. And the work of Christ is greater than the fall of Adam. Point two. I've got it. The header in my notes is the sum of the matter. The sum of the matter. When all's been said. Verses 18 to 21. These verses, as I've already alluded to a couple of times, I just want to be really plain. These verses conclude a section of Paul's letter, the end of chapter 5 here. He is effectively pulling everything together that he has written from chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, right? It's the power of God for salvation for all who believe, to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed, apart from works, right? By faith unto faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. From that point to now, he's bringing it all together. He's putting a bow on his teaching on justification proper. Though everything he writes, beginning in chapter 6 and verse 1, will flow from what he has taught on justification. We'll be thinking about that for a while, Lord willing. 
Let's look, verse 18. You can see the word rendered therefore in your ESV in particular, better rendering probably is so then. Means kind of the same thing, but so then. Dead giveaway. This is a conclusion of what's been written. He says, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Again, doctrine matters. What we believe is the most important thing about not only our church, but our faith. What makes Christianity unique in the scope of every world religion is not its morality, it is its message, right? So understand these things. This is our life. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men in Adam, right? All humans are condemned in the one sin of Adam. Counted with covenant guilt, the whole human race comes under the condemnation of death. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, says Paul, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. The one act of righteousness is very clearly, think Philippians 2, the obedience to the point of death on the cross that our Lord accomplished. He was obedient and obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The all men, right? So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. They're justified. They receive life in Christ. That all men are those who are represented by Christ. It's very simple. It's not hard to understand. Paul has been talking about representation. Everyone who's represented by Adam, this is what's true of you. Everyone who's united to Christ, how? By faith, this is true of you. Everyone united to Christ is justified and will reign in life forever. That's what he's saying. On account of the sin of Adam, the sentence of death was pronounced on all whom he represented. And on account of the righteousness, the obedience of Christ, the verdict of justification and eternal life is pronounced on all whom he represented. Be encouraged. It is not your record that must stand. It is the record of your representative. Paul goes on, verse 19. For as by Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by Christ's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Again, this is our doctrine, saints. Through Adam's disobedience, the many who are in him were made sinners. Paul is referring here again to the guilt of sin. Through Christ's obedience, the many who are in him will be made righteous. His reference here is the justification. So here is the clear teaching of Scripture put as plainly as it can possibly be. I got three bullet points right here. This is worth our contemplation, and it's right from the text. One, saints, what do we believe kind of stuff? One, human beings are made to be sinners through the disobedience of Adam. This is because his sin is counted to. That's one. Two, human beings are made to be righteous through the obedience of Christ. This is because his righteousness is counted to them. Three. In Adam, we are counted with covenant guilt. In Christ, we are counted with covenant righteousness. 
It's very simple. This has been Paul's argument from chapter 1 onward. Consider what he's written, right? He sought to establish that all human beings are what? Guilty. And that on account of that guilt, all human beings are under condemnation. He spilled a lot of ink demonstrating that that's true. He has done that so that he might also explain and extol what? The righteousness by which sinners are justified and are therefore free from all guilt and condemnation. We are counted guilty in Adam and therefore stand condemned. We are counted righteous in Christ and therefore stand justified. Verse 20. Paul's going to begin to talk about the law. If you're familiar with Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19 there, Paul kind of anticipates a question, you know, because of everything he's been arguing for regarding justification and salvation. Why then the law? Why? Why was the law given? It's almost that kind of vibe here. He inserts the law. He's going to explain it to us. Paul says, now the law came in. The law was given to increase the trespass. He says, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. When he says the law here, it's very clear that he means the law of Moses, the Mosaic law. So in other words, the law was given, according to the apostle, to demonstrate that sin abounds. And in showing that, might show how the grace of God in Christ abounds all the more. The trespass there, again, refers to the sin of Adam. The law was given, in one sense, to compound on the sin of Adam. Remember, every human being bears the curse of Adam's covenant. We're spiritually dead by nature. In this death, as a result of Adam's original sin, we see the root and the cause of all other sins. Because of Adam's sin, how bad did it get? By the sixth chapter of Genesis, here's God's assessment of how bad things had gotten. He testified before the flood, you remember this, that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It is precisely that, that wickedness, that the thoughts and inclinations of man's heart are only evil continually. It is precisely that that the giving of the law made evident. Do you see that? Does that make sense? The law was given. The law came, to use Paul's language here, not so that sinners could be justified by it. It's not possible for fallen man. Fallen man must be redeemed from the curse of the law and created new in Christ. The law came, Romans 7.13, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. The law came, Romans 3.19, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The law came so that we might learn that the righteous God loves Righteousness. That His law is holy. 
and vast. That his law is spiritual. And that its obligations extend to every aspect of our person. So that we might understand that he will not remove or relax even one jot or one tittle of his perfect standard. Because it's a revelation of his own character. The law was given as a perfect standard by which we are taught to measure ourselves. So that what? One, we might see our guilt and condemnation. Two, and be led to look to him who is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, namely Jesus Christ. Insertion. Just kind of like, I'm just going to insert this right here. Track with me. If the goal, like capital letters, if the goal of God in giving the law was to make there be fewer sins, we can most assuredly say that the lawgiver has been disappointed. If the goal, I'm not saying that there aren't other aims and uses of the law, there are, but if the primary goal of the lawgiver was that there would be fewer sins in the world, we can say with great confidence that he has been greatly disappointed. By the entrance of the law, think about this, sin has been multiplied a thousandfold. Lest we think that, you know, the guilt of Adam isn't that big a deal, or lest we think that our corruption is not that big a deal, God gave the law and it got a thousand times worse, not better. The establishment of the Mosaic Law, clearly, it delineated the breaking of the moral law. Ten Commandments. It outlined that. Ruins us all. Made it plain. These are violations of God's holy moral law. And alongside that, remember that the ceremonial aspects of the Mosaic Law introduced a whole host of sins that were not sins before God said they were. There were things introduced, covenant faithfulness, ceremonial law, that inherently is not moral or immoral. But God's word was attached to it. He said, you shall live this way and not that way. And so sin increases all the more because now there's more law to violate. In all of this, remember, God is never disappointed regarding his intentions in anything. He is never thwarted in his purposes in any way. Amen, someone. He isn't. And so, through the giving of the law, the wickedness of the human heart was made undeniably clear. It is evident that God gave the law to increase the trespass. Let's be real for a minute. We know ourselves. If God had not given the law so clearly at Sinai, and throughout the scripture thereafter. We would never see ourselves to be the miserable offenders that we are. We wouldn't. We have the law and we delude ourselves into thinking we can keep it. How much more so would that be true if we didn't even have it? We would never, therefore, see our need of a Savior if God had not given the law. We would go on thinking that we're basically okay. Pretty good people. 
kind of a mashup of good and bad. But you know, when it all sorts out in the wash, probably all right. The law, as is written in the Psalms and throughout the Scripture, the law is what? A lamp and a light. That does mean that it guides us. The law is a lamp and a light, first and foremost, in that it shows us the reality of our condition. For through the law, Romans 3.20, comes what? Knowledge of sin. But that's not all that Paul writes in verse 20. The law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So even as the law came in to increase the trespass, to make sin abound, grace abounded more so. The law was given to expose the wickedness of our hearts, to show us our sin and the depth of our ruin, and to cause sin to abound. Why? To the end that we would look to Christ and to the end that the grace of God would be shown to abound even more than sin. Grace that is greater than all our sin indeed. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable are His ways. If you're sitting there and you're thinking, all right, brother, you're helping me understand the law and why it was given in its primary sense. But help me a little bit more. Why does this matter for me? That I would think about the law in these ways as Paul writes. This matters for you as a Christian. Because the longer that we are in Christ and the more mature we become and the more we consider God's law, the more as believers we will really see our own hearts as human beings. There is a lot out there that implies that the more mature we become, the better we'll be doing, and so we'll feel better about ourselves as Christians. The more mature we become, the better we'll be doing, as though we're, we still need a lot of grace, but maybe not as much as I used to need. None of that is true or helpful. The longer we are in Christ, the more mature we become, the more we consider God's holy law, the more we will really see our own hearts and we will see that it's far worse in there than we thought. If anything, we may feel worse about ourselves and we will despair more of our own righteousness and that is a good thing. We will be more convinced and more convicted of our need of Christ as we consider the law and its standard. We will see that if anything, our need of grace is even deeper and even more significant than we first thought. We are humbled. We come to realize as well, take heart here, we come to realize that God has always known us for who we are. He's always known the depth of our corruption. And that He has loved us and He has saved us anyway. And we are helped as we think of the law in these ways, as we're humbled and we're driven to Christ and we see in more depth our need of grace. We're helped in our pursuit of real sanctification. All of this produces more gratitude to God for saving us. 
more astonishment at God's grace. A greater sense of wonder at what Christ alone has accomplished. At the lengths he had to go to to save a wretch like us. It produces a heightened desire to honor God in your life. It produces joy and hope for the future when we will be saved to sin no more. And it causes us to love better. To love more here and now. Verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, as has been the case throughout the chapter, death, of course, signifies the curse of Adam's covenant, of which temporal death is only a part. And at the same time, it's right to say that temporal death is always the effect of the reign of sin. But notice what Paul is doing. As sin reigned in death, so grace reigns through righteousness. That death was the penalty of Adam's sin. That righteousness is clearly the reward for Christ's obedience. It's his righteousness, which leads to eternal life through him. As sin reigned in imputed guilt, grace reigns through imputed righteousness and leads to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. As the triumph of sin over the human race was through the transgression of Adam, so the triumph of grace is through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it is through Christ alone that we have eternal life, and He is the one who gives it to us. 1 Corinthians 15.45 Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. Genesis 2.7 the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. In the beginning was the Word, right? The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. You know these words. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. Jesus says, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. I am, says Christ, the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. For all whom Jesus represents, he has ended the reign of sin and death and has established the reign of grace through his own obedience and righteousness. This is the plan of God, beloved. To bring good out of evil, to triumph over sin in grace, to triumph over death through righteousness, so that the glories of redemption would infinitely outstrip the horrors of the fall. All of this through Christ, to the praise of God the Father. That's point two. We're now going to conclude our time. So a, a sister in the church, a member, came by the office this week chatting with Mackenzie and me, and we were talking a little bit about the text. And she said, you know, it's, it's incredible how catching glimpses of God's eternal plan gives so much peace in the everyday struggles of this life. 
Isn't that true? Catching glimpses of God's eternal plan gives so much peace in the everyday struggles of this life. Nothing better to consider, nothing better to behold than the plan of God from all eternity. The more we can look at it, the more peace we have. In Romans, and pointedly the last couple of weeks, we've been considering what Paul writes about representation. In Adam, yes, but especially in Christ. To be in Christ, beloved, is everything. If Jesus is your representative, all is well. And all will be well. May we all be comforted as well. Don't think that this principle of representation, this hope, that if I'm in Christ, all is well and all will be well. Do not think that this is some invention of the Apostle Paul. It matters that we would be able to go to the Scriptures and understand these things. This truth and principle of representation is woven all throughout this book. It begins with Adam in the garden, as we have considered pointedly in recent weeks. We all know that the first promise of the Gospel, the first promise of a covenant of grace is made in the garden, immediately upon the sin of man, when God curses the serpent, and he says that he's going to put enmity between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring, and that there is going to be one of the woman's offspring who's going to come and bruise the head of the serpent. And then God begins, God begins to pointedly bring this promised Redeemer. It's what the Scriptures are. It's the story of Him coming. We have Abraham in the beginning of the nation of Israel, the giving of the law to govern that people and to give a standard of righteousness as we've considered today. And then there's the covenant with this man named David. How he's going to have a son who's going to sit on the throne and reign forever provided that he keeps the law. David's son Solomon, who at the beginning of his reign looks like he might be the guy, turns out not to be, of course, but God says to Solomon, if you obey and do well, it will go well for Israel. If you disobey, break the law, Israel will be cut off. Representation. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom kind of stuff. Then the prophets start writing some things. The prophet Isaiah regarding the servant of the Lord, particularly Isaiah 53 that we read today. This servant of the Lord would come to take the punishment of his people so that we might go free. This servant of the Lord would come and obey and his obedience to the law would make the many to be accounted righteous. Then you have the prophet Jeremiah. Words we also read earlier today that bear repeating. I will raise up, the days are coming, says the Lord. I'm going to raise up a righteous branch for David, a child of David. He will sit on the throne. He's going to execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his day, Judah and Israel, all of God's people will be saved. And the name by which he will be called is the Lord is our righteousness. Not that we are our own. He is our righteousness. This is the message of the prophets. This understanding of representation is at the heart of biblical covenant theology. Covenants bind one and many. The Old Testament, nobody would debate, is richly and thoroughly covenantal. Adam, Noah. Abraham, Moses, David. But then the prophets write as well of this new covenant that the Lord would make. Listen to how it's described from the pen of Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant 
with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Then these words, for I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. What is it that established that new covenant? What is it that ratified the new covenant? And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Or in Luke's gospel. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Or as the writer to the Hebrews says, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that had come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. What is it that established this new covenant? What ratified it? The blood of Christ. And Paul understands very clearly the work of Christ is the fulfillment of that new covenant. It's very clear, very plain. This is the argument of the apostle. In Adam, covenant guilt is counted to us. In Jesus, covenant righteousness is counted to us. The righteousness of Christ overcomes our covenant guilt. And it overcomes all of the sins we commit as a result of being dead in Adam. God's grace will triumph over sin through the righteousness of Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. The two Adams, the first one and the last one, are the two heads of the two great covenants in time and space. The first Adam is the representative of all who are under his covenant. And he communicates his image to them. The second Adam is the representative of all who are under his covenant. And he communicates his image to them. Consider Paul from 1 Corinthians 15 as we conclude our time. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Then this, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Amen. Saints, consider the eternal plan of God and take heart. Let's pray.